So as I stated, we're finishing up this message, and last week, Pastor Dom did an amazing job of leading into this section. He did. This is the mark of a good preacher. When they read God's Word, when they explain God's Word, and show us how to apply God's Word. That's good preaching. When a Bible's opened up and we understand God's Word differently than the way in which we did before. And that's exactly what Pastor Dom did. And he talked on a lot of different things, but one of them was, did you notice the discussion about end times? You may have, right? Well, just, so you, just to kind of give us a framework, that's kind of what he's going to come out of as we're moving into this section here. As we close this, knowing this, and we know end times to be this word eschatology, right? It comes from the word eschata and logos, which is the word of the end. So the end times, words of the end times, or for us, for us as we study God's word, right? So eschatology is the fancy word that we call for looking at what is to come, the things that we don't know. So we're going to be looking at it in that framework this morning as we finish up this section of text here. And I've titled this, this message here, Not a Waiting Room. Um, and I was concerned that I might confuse you a little bit with that, so follow along with me as we move through this. But the idea is that we're going to see that word waiting come up multiple times in the text. We're going to see it three different times. But I think we have an idea in our minds of what waiting looks like. Have any of you ever been in a waiting room? Doctor's office, um, auto service center, uh, whatever it could be. You know, I think about, when I think about waiting rooms, my wife absolutely despises the auto center waiting room. Um, so no offense to you people out there that have auto centers. David, I apologize. Um, because there's such a, you know, a stigma that comes with waiting rooms, right? You know, you could usually fall into what I think would be kind of one of three categories, you're like, you get there and you're like, whatever, you know, I'm just here, so you just chill. Um, or you're constantly fidgeting, shifting around in your seat, pacing the room, you know, keep looking back there, you know, when are they going to be done, what's going on? Or if it's like a doctor's office and you're like, not sure what you're going to get, there's like this anticipation, this anxiousness that develops in it. Or you're like, you know what, you know, I got this set amount of time, I'm going to read a book. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch something on my phone, I'm going to scroll up for minutes and minutes and minutes and look at all of the silly stuff people put out there on Facebook. Not everything's silly, right? So we understand this idea of waiting. But I think so many times when we think of waiting, we think of this static moment where really nothing else is going on and we're just like our life's on pause. But what we're going to see here in the text is that this waiting that Peter talks about is not as such. It's not a waiting room like we would typically think about or we would typically consider. And I think our Christian walk is similar in some ways to this. But we're going to see that Peter's going to say here, it's really completely, it's really completely different. As we close out this letter, he's going to send us off with some really good encouragement. Uh, particularly, he's going to be speaking, as I said, to the Lord's return, to this idea of final judgment. But I like what he's going to do here is he's going to show us the end first. And then ultimately show us how to get there and why we're going there to get there, right? So he kind of shows us this, shows us the end first. How many of you like to know the end first? All right, that's why we're so enamored with the book of Revelation so many times. 
Fortunately, sometimes it's unhealthy. But I was thinking about this. I, I, had the, I had the honor of doing a wedding last week. And this did not happen in that particular wedding, but I thought about it. Because I was reading this story from another preacher, and he says, man, he's like, every time I do a wedding rehearsal, it just feels like nobody ever gets it. Like, it's like, okay, do it again, come back down again, come back down again. He's going over and over and over again. He said, you know, one day an older, wiser preacher said, you know, if you would start with bringing everybody in the front first, show them where they're supposed to end up, and then go send them to the back, he's like, you won't have to practice many times at all. And he's like, it was amazing. He was like, instantly, everybody knew what to do. They knew where to stop. They knew where to take their picture. They knew where to turn. He's like, it was amazing, right? So Peter's going to do the same thing here for us. He's going to show us the end, which is ultimately when God restores all things to himself. And he's going to say, okay, so now that we know that this is where we're heading, let's go back this way. He's like, and now we're going to head towards that because of what we ultimately know. So that's what Peter's doing throughout this whole message. There's going to be two thoughts I believe Peter's going to beg from us as we come here. One, the reality that we are waiting. We are waiting for the Lord's return. That's a reality for us as believers here today. And that's going to encompass about the first half of the message. And then secondly, being that we know that this reality of waiting is true, how are we going to act? How are we going to walk out our faith in Jesus Christ, knowing where we're ultimately trying to get to? So he's going to begin this section in verses 11 through 13, and it's going to be a bit of a recap of what you heard last week. So if you're thinking, it sounds very familiar. Well, first of all, I'm not reading what Pastor Dom did last week, but it is very, it is very similar. So picking up in verse 11, it says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire, and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will be melt as they burn. So let's look at some of these details as he's setting up, because he's really setting up this section here for the last four verses. So he starts off with this, since all these things thus be dissolved. Uh, so that word since obviously points us back to a reality that he spoke in verse 10, that judgment's going to come, the end of the world is going to happen. So since you know that, since you know that, you know, and it's going to be, and he, and he kind of explains here that, like, it's not like this destruction that any of us just think of, like, you just demoed your house. Like, it says there in his text that it's down to the heavenly bodies. Well, that means the elements. That means when God brings his wrath upon this world, it comes down to an atomic level. So for you science nerds, neutrons, protons, electrons, that is the way in which it's going to be dissolved, right? So there's not much left, correct? You're trying to get across, get across this point. So ultimately, the way I read that is, is there's not much here that counts for much, right? Because it will all thus be dissolved. So I always ask myself the question, what is of eternal value? Right? And we should ask our question, ourselves that question, what is ultimately of eternal value? Is it the things that we possess in our hands? Obviously, we know that that's not, right? We had some friends years back, we was at their house, and they had a sign in their house, and it said, what is eternal or is it eternal? Right? And it was a reminder for them. So as they walked out their day, in light of their life, and they looked at different situations and circumstances, is this eternal? Is this the thing that will not be dissolved ultimately when the Lord returns? And then he says, what sort of people ought you to be? Now, you and I read that as a question. 
Right? But the truth is, it's really actually in the original language. It's not a question. It's a statement. It's a statement of fact. It's actually one of astonishment. It's like, well, since you know all these things, what sort of people are you going to be? Right? It's not like one we're supposed to really actually answer. It's one that's by, it's implied that the sort of people we're going to be is ones that understand the reality that all of this is going to be dissolved. So what is ultimately eternal? So you say, well, okay, well, how does this happen? Well, he continues and he says, well, it's going to happen through living lives of what? Holiness and godliness. So since you know all these things, since you obviously are going to be this type of person because you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then what that's going to look like is you're going to walk out lives of holiness and godliness. So what he tells us there, holiness speaks to our conduct. It's the, it's the external actions. It's our behavior. It's when we walk in holiness. To be holy is to be set apart, right? We should, be, we should desire to be holy. Peter told us previously, you are holy, God says, because I am holy, right? So this idea, it's, our, it's externally, it's what we walk out. It's our lives as Christians, and that picture godliness in the, the language there and the definition of it, it's our internal heart response. What is our view? What is our, what is our heart towards God? What is our heart behind all that we do? And when at your heart is the focus of godliness, then the outpouring of that is holiness in your conduct. And when we look at things that we believe here at Living Word Church, one of those things is personal holiness that each one of us would walk out lives desiring holiness, desiring to be more like Christ. Have you ever heard of the duck test? I think you have. If it looks like a duck, if it swims like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, it probably is a duck, right? Well, that's called abductive reasoning, right? That's the fancy word for that. And basically what that means is, you just pull away what you can, and based on that, you come up with some sort of answer. It's clearly not always accurate. Like if I do abductive reason at my house, and I see a leftover sandwich on the table, what I'm going to take away from that is I have a kid who's selfish, self-centered, desires to do nothing for themselves, but leave this food for my mom, their mom, to clean up. Now, that's not always accurate, because sometimes, um, sometimes there's, most times they... They're lazy. Um, I was looking for an opportunity. I missed it. So I would say for us, would we pass the duck test? If he or she looks like a Christian, acts like a Christian, walks like a Christian, they probably are a Christian, right? If they live lives of holiness and godliness. That's what Peter's saying there. That's what's the mark of what it's going to look like as far as you move in towards eternity. Is your life marked by holiness and godliness. Would we pass the test? But even further, what's our motivation to live like that? What's our motivation to do that? And firstly, Peter speaks to it here, and he says, after this idea of living lives of holiness and godliness, he says, waiting for and hastening. Waiting for and hastening. Remember that word waiting we talked about. Here it is. We see it coming up again. This is the second time. This idea of waiting. And waiting in the original language, is prostakeo. Prostakeo, and what it actually means is looking, right? With, with an eagerness, looking out ahead, not just sitting there waiting for something to happen, but on the horizon. You know, think about when you're looking for something, right? You're waiting for somebody to show up. Or I think about like 
when my kids order something and they're waiting for the delivery truck. They sit there. We had one of our kids one time sat all day long waiting for the FedEx truck to pull up. And it never showed up. Not that day anyway. Right? There was a looking. There's a, in the waiting, there's also an expectation. That's a, that's a better way for us to look at it. And, and look, anytime we see that word, prostakeo, in the New Testament, specifically in the Gospels, it's speaking about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Christ. It's more than just a casual way in which we look, but it's an expectation for what's to come. And he continues and he says, to hasten, right? Well, to hasten is to desire earnestly, to desire earnestly, right? Rather than waiting for something, it's we're running towards something, right? We say, make haste, right? We've heard that terminology before. When we hasten, we move ultimately towards it. There's a desire for us. I think about when I'm tracking a deer after you shoot it, right? There's an expectation, right? Pastor Ben, when you hit your golf ball, right? Don't you just like have this earnest desire to find it in the middle of the fairway particularly, right? We have a desire when we go out like that. And I think, you know, something that reminds me of this every day in my faith, in my walk, is many of us here have the blessing to work with Miss Bessie Lede. Yeah, absolutely. And she's, this is one of her favorite and what I would say famous sayings around is, one day closer to Jesus, one day closer to Jesus. And I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, man, it's kind of morbid. <laughs> but the Lord has since worked in my heart. Um, but isn't it true? Like, is we're, that's, that's this waiting and this longing and this expectation that we're one day closer to Jesus. Now, we understand that that means death, or unless we're lucky enough to be a part of the rapture. But there's something in our heart that has to get there when we're waiting and we're looking and we're hastening. I love what John says as he closes out the book of Revelation, the second to last verse. He says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Right? Absolutely. That's our motivation because then he says that waiting for and in hastening the coming of the day of God. So that's what we're waiting for. That's what we're hastening, the day of God. And you say, all right, I turned, Dom talked about the day of the Lord and there's all these days and uh, what does it all mean? Well, we'll have to wait till we preach the revelation. Um, but the picture there for us when we see the word day of God, first of all, that is different than day of the Lord. Right? The day of God is when all things are made, are made new, a new heavens and a new earth. And it's really in contrast that currently we're living in man's day. We're living in man's sinfulness and a broken world and so forth. But there is going to be the day of God that happens. And it happens after the day of the Lord, which is judgment on all of the unbelievers. The day of God is the eternal state that we long for, the motivation for which why we would live lives of holiness and godliness. But there's conflicting emotions when you look at those two days. At least there should be, right? We look at the day of God and we think about all that is to come. We think about perfection. We think about living in the righteousness of God. All things right, new heaven, new earth. And, like, and that should be exciting to us. But then we also know that that means that the day of the Lord also has happened. And that's not one that necessarily is so exciting. 
It's not one that's necessarily so um, emotionally joyful, right? It's one that carries a major, major weight. And I think for us as believers, we need to, we need to wrap our minds around this. Because there will be many, many people on that day that are sent to an eternity of hell. May that never be our heart's desire to anybody to do that. I think the Apostle John in Revelation really speaks to this emotion that comes with that. And this is in the section where he's, they're, they're talking about the, the seals and the bowls and the trumpets, all the different judgment and wrath that's coming. And in chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, he says, So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in the mouth, but when I had eaten it, in my stomach was made bitter. So the picture is, is taking in the truth of God's word. And when we take in the truth of God's word, we know the reality of what's ultimately to come. And yes, it's sweet for the believer because it means an eternity with God. But in the same time, it's bitter. John's word there says it was, it, it was nauseating to him to think that there were going to be people that would be a part from Christ. So when we look at this here, our motivation is ultimately where we're going But we need to understand why so that we can know how we're going to ultimately act it out while we are here on earth. Verse 13, he continues and he says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Right? So the day of God, the day of the Lord is coming and we know where we're going to. But why did they have this promise? And I thought this was interesting because it is is a promise. But the book of Revelation, for example, wasn't written yet. Right? They didn't even know the New Testament wasn't even finalized at this point. So they're looking back to Isaiah 65, 17. It says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Right? So they understood this picture of eternity and what it meant. So as we move on to this next, this next section of the text, as we move on kind of a shift in how we're going to look at this, In the wake of Peter's recap of coming back to verse 10 and 9, right, we're going to look at what's the motivation and how our lives should reflect Christ, knowing where we're ultimately going to. And I've got it in your notes here as four different questions that we're going to answer. If you notice, you've got a little blank. That little blank's not because we forgot to put something, because I'm going to give you something to write there. So remember, Peter's given this exhortation to dispersed believers. Uh, By extension, he's speaking to us here today as as God's word always does. So the, the kind of the framework or the question that starts us off, if the Lord were to return today, our first thing we're going to look at here is what attitude would you be found with? What attitude would you be found with? And that attitude speaks to, by definition, our behavior. Our overall behavior. What is the external of what you and I do as we walk out our lives as believers? He picks up in verse 14 and he says, therefore. So similarly how we saw since before, he kind of segued us. And now he's saying therefore. So now that I have reiterated it, now that you understand it, now that we're moving forward, beloved. 
Anytime you see that word beloved in the text, that's a, that is a picture of, of just of deep love for brothers and sisters in Christ. So you can, ne- you can always know that he's speaking to the church, and it really carries a weight of benevolence, of actually loving with a depth. Since you are waiting for these, so that's the third time we see the word waiting, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Right? This idea of being diligent, interestingly enough, is the same word in the original language as we saw hasten. So it says waiting and hastening. Now he says again, waiting and diligence. Right? And we know that to be an earnest desire, a moving forward with an expectation, looking ultimately for the return of Christ. But he says to do it without, that we should be found without spot or blemish. Right? So be found without spot or blemish. Anytime I think of found, and particularly when I was doing this, for you parents or you grandparents or those of you who've had kids, I have lots of kid stories. Um, you know how like when you're sitting in your house and it's really quiet? And you're like, has anybody heard from the kids in a while? And you say, it's probably ought to go see what's, what's going on, right? Most times when that happens, do you normally find your kids without spot or blemish? No, more than likely, they got spots and blemishes on your carpet, on your wall, on your book, or on whatever your favorite thing is, right? So this idea of being found, so whenever you're found, what are you going to be found doing? Are you going to be found without spot or without blemish? And spot speaks to your character. By definition, when you look at, the, when you look at it once again in the original language, it's speaking to our character, that our character that should be formed and informed by God's word. And, our, and blemish speaks to our reputation. How do people know you? What do people know about you? How would they categorize you? Where do you, where do you fit in? Do you pass the duck test? Right? Are you a Christian? You shouldn't be a duck. You should be a Christian. Right? And then also, we, where have we heard this before? There's Old Testament reference to sacrifice. Right? Whenever you were to make a sacrifice unto God, that lamb had to be with without spot or blemish right? And that was a picture of the purity of the sacrifice, the purity of what ultimately was being given. But look what Peter did here in this verse. What he's doing is he's actually circling back to something he mentioned previously in his letter, the place in which he gave us the standard for what it meant to not have a spot or a blemish. Now, we got to go all the way back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. He says, knowing that you were, so remember we, knowing this, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So what's the standard? Christ is the standard. Now he brings it up again a second time prior to this, showing us a direct contrast to that of Christ. This was just a few weeks ago in chapter 2, verse 13. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. So who's he talking to there? False teachers. We've talked a lot about that. 
So the false teachers are marked by being covered with spots and blemishes on their character and their reputation, and it doesn't ultimately line up with the Word of God. Christ is the standard. Here's where it's way wrong. You can't be over here. Christ ultimately is the standard. I love this quote I saw from Spurgeon. It says, as you walk the streets of London, remember, you've got the reputation of God in your hands. Wow. Right? Do we walk like that? And lastly, he says that we should be found at peace. What does it mean to be found at peace? Well, first of all, when we look at that word once again in the Greek, it's irene. Irene, and it means the certainty of knowing that your sins have been forgiven through the finished work of the cross. That peace speaks directly to our salvation. This peace only comes because now we are no longer in judgment of God because Christ has filled the void, has bridged the gap between sinful man and a holy God. Right? When the angel comes, when Jesus has come, he says, peace to those who on earth, to all of those that believe. Right? That peace comes whenever that righteousness of Christ is placed upon our lives through the work of salvation. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. No matter what happens around us, the hope that we have in the assurance of the finished work of the cross in our lives is why we can move forward. It's why we can look for and hasten the return of the Lord ultimately. I love what it says in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, but as it's written, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You know, when we read that, we automatically think that that's a picture of heaven, right? But the truth is, is what Paul's saying here is what God has prepared for you in salvation, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is what he's saying here. Because you don't even need to worry about heaven if this truth is first not made real in your heart. What God has prepared for you is the indwelling of his spirit so that you can walk in a peace that surpasses all understanding. Heaven is a promise for us as believers. It's a hope ultimately for our future. But are we always necessarily settled in that in our walk? Do we, norm- do we necessarily feel that assurance at all times? I mean, the answer is, the answer is of course not. Right? We, we struggle in those ways, but it is the Lord's command there for us to not be anxious in anything. Like, that's not up for debate. That's not like, take it if you want, leave it if you want. That's a command of God. Do not be anxious. When we do get to the place where this truth is settled out in our heart, it will impact our actions. Right? And the second one there, do your actions reflect Christ? Do your actions reflect Christ? And he picks up in verse 15, the first part, and he says, and count the patience of your Lord as salvation. What does it mean when someone says, you can count on it? Count on it. It's pretty straightforward, right? We don't need to second guess it. 
count on it. But what are we counting on here? That the Lord's patience is salvation. Pastor Dom told us last week that that word patience comes from the word macrothemia, which means large, great anger that's mounting up. That's what God's judgment ultimately is. His patience is ultimately his righteous judgment mounting up. Now, you and I, in our patience, may have unrighteous wrath building up, right? We shouldn't, but we, we don't share in the same attribute of God when it comes to wrath, right? So it's mounting up. We know his patience is mounting, ultimately, as the Lord of salvation. So the time in which the Lord doesn't come back, that's salvation. Why is that ultimately salvation? Because there's a lost and a dying world out there that needs to know Jesus, That's where it is. Think about this. Every single day that the Lord tarries, every single day that the Lord has not come home, he's adding his elect to his kingdom day after day after day after day. Think about that, church. That's a big deal. When's God going to return? When all that he has set before the foundations of the earth to know him as a believer in Christ Jesus when he finishes that list, that's when the Lord returns. It's not a mystical thing. It's not something that you have to be worried about. Actually, Scripture says we can't know anyway. Why are y'all so enamored in trying to figure out when the Lord's coming back? Scripture says you're not going to know. So that means that being that we're not going to know, there's got to be something that we need to do differently as we're walking it out. Do our actions reflect Christ. We're ambassadors for Christ and the message of salvation. Consider that. I love what it says here in 2 Corinthians 15. It says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the good news, right? Pastor Scott told us a couple weeks ago, it's the la bonne nouvelle, right, for you French people. It is the good news. That's the gospel, this one that we can be reconciled with the holy God through the finished work of the cross. Reconciliation comes from the word katalage. It means to exchange, right? It's an exchange What is the exchange? Our sinfulness for the righteousness of Christ. Think about that. It's not even fair, right? And it shouldn't be. It's an exchange. It's the greatest exchange of all time. I heard it quoted like this. God treated Jesus on the cross as if he lived your life so he could treat you as if you lived his. Wow. Remember the story of the prodigal son? What a beautiful picture of reconciliation. A son that threw everything back in his father's face. And what, we, what did we see? A father who every day longed, looked for, was awaiting the day that his son would come home. Right? We know he would run out to the edge of town every day, looking for him and waiting for him. And finally he sees him coming back. And what does he do? He completely reconciles that whole situation. That's you and I here today before Christ. Christ looking for us, right? Seeking us out. God is the one that sought us in salvation. 
close there. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. That's our actions as a believer. That we would walk out being an ambassador for Christ, exclaiming, proclaiming the reality of the message of the gospel. That should mark our ministry. That should mark our lives as believers. As we await his return discussed here, we can't lose sight of the day of God or the day of the Lord. We have to be busy about doing the work of an evangelist. That's not just certain people. For us as believers, we are all evangelists. We're all walking this out. He continues his thought in, verse, in our third point here that are you aware of the scriptures that have been twisted? Are you aware of the scriptures that have been twisted? Peter does three things here as he kind of lands the plane here on this, this last letter to the church there. Firstly, he's going he's gonna to validate, first of all, the writings of Paul as scripture. Right? That's going to be one of the first things he does there. He continues in verse 15. Just as our beloved, remember that word beloved, brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. So the writings of Paul would have been completed at this point. And they would have been pretty well circulated in that area. People would have, would have known about it. It would have been a way for him to point back to it. So he's validating Paul. It was something they're familiar with. But what he's also saying is Paul's written some of the same things as me. He's warned you about people that are going to twist the scriptures. He's warned you about the false teacher and the things to be able to watch out for. So he's given a bit of a confirmation there. But then he also tells us that there's some things that are hard to understand with Paul's writing. It says there in verse 16, the second part there, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Right? So how many of you read Paul, and after you read it, you just kind of go, just kind of tilt your head sideways, right? Well, just know that you're not alone, right? Now, he's not ultimately trying to, to say that it's not. What he's saying here, this idea of difficult to understand, ultimately means difficult to interpret. And the reason why it's difficult to interpret is because there's just things that don't necessarily make sense in our logical mind. We need to have the understanding of God's Word through His Holy Spirit in our life to be able to interpret these hard truths. Like just when we talk about the rapture, right? That's, you know, it's hard to wrap your mind around that. There's lots of movies out there, but are they accurate? Probably not, right? Also, like, how is God fully man? Excuse me, how is Jesus fully God and fully man? Well, Scripture tells us it's true, but, and look, there's all kinds of false teaching that has come because of that, because people are trying to logically understand why that has taken place. So he's saying it's not that you can't understand him. It's difficult, However, if you get into God's Word, if you desire to know, then those things become real and true in your life. Look, the Bible is clear, but just, just because you don't understand it doesn't mean that that's a problem. It is clear. We can know. There's clarity for us as believers. We've got to be diligent to study God's Word. Not only do we have to be diligent, we've got to be diligent to say, what was the author's intention inspired by the Holy Spirit when this was penned, right? The Bible doesn't mean different things to different people at different times. The Bible always means the same thing that God intended for it to mean from the moment that the pen hit the paper, right? And, then we, and we didn't know that's true. Like, we need to have a conviction that when we read Scripture that we get it right. 
Right? Are you always going to get it right? Well, not, no, no, you won't, first of all. But if we come from a heart of understanding the reality of Christ in our lives, the impact and the centrality of what God's Word should mean for us, then we're going to have a conviction to get this right. We should have a conviction in every part of our life when we hear God's Word, when we preach God's Word, when we read it ourselves, whatever it is, that we would get it right. Why? Because there lies the truth that has life-changing ability for us. It's not just this self-serving document. It's not just something you pick up to hurry up and figure something out to put it back on the shelf. It's not this how-to manual, and once you get it, you move on from it. But yes, is there a lot to learn here? Is there a lot that we do learn? Is it the way by which we will learn every way in which we walk out our life? Absolutely. But it's not a self-serving document. It's a document that brings glory to God. And every time that we read it and every time we engage it, it should lift high the name of Christ. It's not just a how-to manual. It's not just a basic book. It is the book. Continuing there, that last point that he brings up in this section. We must be aware of the false teachings and teachers. Have you heard that before? Yeah, we've talked about it a lot. He says in verse 16, he says, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Look at the words there. He describes these false teachers with three words. They're ignorant, which means they're untaught. They're unstable. Their character is hypocritical and inconsistent. Right? They're not living lives without spot or blemish. Right? They're lawless. Their hearts are not guided ultimately by biblical truths. He's saying, watch out for that. They're twisting the scriptures, which is why for you and I, we need to care deeply about what God's word says. Care deeply about making sure that we ultimately get it right. And then as he brings us to verse 17 here, it's almost like this feeling like Peter's pointing his finger at us. Now he's talking to his beloved, so it's a, it's a letter of love. But I, I kind of think about it in this way. Right? How many of you point your finger at your kids whenever you mean business? Right? It's like it takes it to a whole other level, right? But he's not, being, he's not being harsh here. He's coming with a great depth of love because he says, once again, you therefore. All right, so now, once again, now that you've got this section that I just talked about clear, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Wow. So he says, knowing this beforehand. So when did that mean you knew it? Beforehand. You already know this. I've already shared this with you. I've already put this in these letters. The truth is there. You know it. You've heard it. You don't have any excuse. He says, but you still need to take care, which means to be on your guard. You need to take care. Be on guard. Watch what is happening before us, right? This idea of knowing beforehand comes from the word prognosco. Prognosco. What does that sound like in our English language? Prognosis, right? So it's this idea that it's beforehand. There's something that we know here. So knowing this beforehand and knowing in, the, in, in Scripture is not just a general lackadaisical knowing a detail or two. Actually, when we see the word know in Scripture, most every time it speaks to, to intimacy, first of all, in, in a husband and a wife, Right? All of us as, as husbands and wives know each other different than just this data exchange, 
right? And ultimately, Christ is knowing of us as his children, right? So knowing comes with a real depth of it right here. And it says that we should not be carried away. We must be steadfast and immovable. Steadfast and immovable. I love what Paul says here. Speaking to this in 1 Timothy, he's closing out the book to Timothy. He says, Oh, Timothy, my dear son, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. And that's how Paul closes out all his letters. As I did it, grace would be with you as you walk out, as you, com- as you complete that letter there, that truth that he shared from us. And what I see there is one, this guarding of this deposit. Well, that deposit is our salvation, the truth of our salvation in our life. That we would guard it. And just as he said there, that we would take care to not be carried away. And ultimately, we would not swerve from our faith. We understand what swerving means, right? You do it on the road a lot right now because it's trash everywhere, right? Constantly swerving. But in our faith and our walk, we don't swerve from the faith. We hold steady. We hold true because what? We know what the end is. We know that ultimately God restores all things. So we're not ultimately worried about that. We know that's the truth. Therefore, we stay steadfast. We stay immovable. We preach the message of the gospel. We desire the lost person to be saved. We bring glory to the name of God because we know where we're going. It's not up for debate. And as he closes here, in this fourth question that we must answer, is, is your assurance in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 18, the first part, he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's given us all of this information. And he closes out here in the the first part of the last verse, but grow in the grace and the knowledge. And that grace and that knowledge is going to happen in who? In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, he starts off his book with this same picture, that it's all about Christ. It's all about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He takes the first part of that chapter there to point the church, those exiles, to Christ. And now he's closing up and he's still pointing them to Christ. Does that mark our lives? Are we constantly pointing people back to Christ? And he says, but grow. Remember what he said in the verse before, don't be unstable but grow. Growing in the ability to grow can only come from a place of stability. I mean, think about, it, think about if you planted a plant at your house, and it got started, and then you pulled it up and went, do it again, and pulled it up, and every time it got to go on, you pulled it up and moved it and moved it and moved it. Think about a tree. Think about your yard where you have one, and you run it over with your lawnmower every week, right? There's no stability in that for something to grow. So in order to grow, we've got to be in a place of stability, And that stability is God's Word. It's the truth of Scripture. Growth then also comes, not also, it comes through the grace and knowledge, he says. Grace and knowledge. That knowledge is God's Word. That grace is what God extended to us. 
and the message of reconciliation in salvation. Our salvation and our desire to grow in greater Christ-likeness. And we talked about it this morning, growth track. We talked about the fact that when we're being sanctified, when we're being set apart as a believer for the Lord Jesus Christ, the way it works in our heart is that we first gain understanding. And that understanding comes through God's Word. And as we understand God's Word, convictions are beginning to be developed in our lives. We begin to respond differently to the things around us. And ultimately, they become affections in our life. Where we, we love and we desire to be obedient and follow the things of God. But that's not going to come through you just flippantly walking through life, disregarding scriptural truths, taking serious the reality of the patience of the Lord at this time. May our focus always be on God's Word. For those of you that are familiar with music and band terminology, I like to think of it like this in my life. Our physical man, as it, from the moment we're born, right, we know we are heading towards death. It's a degrading process. Some of you might say, you know, you peaked at like 30 or 40 or 50, or maybe some of you will go as far as 60 or 70, you're deceived. Um, but as, this, as, the, as our physical man decrescendos towards death and ultimately towards the grave, at some point there's an intersection of our spirit man crescendoing to greater Christ-likeness. So one part of us is dying while the other part of us is growing and thriving in a way in which is completely contrary Right? Which is why when you see someone that's been walking with the Lord faithfully for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, you know, like they, everything hurts, everything's not right, there's all kinds of problems, you spend more time in the waiting room at the doctor's office than you do anywhere else. But when you talk to them, there's such a joy in their heart for what God has ultimately done. Right? You get to this place where, oh Lord, come, one day closer to Jesus, right? It doesn't become to seem such a weird statement anymore. Right? We long ultimately to be with God. But while we're here, we have a responsibility. And that responsibility in exalting Christ is to do just that. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul closes with this doxology, which is a bit different than some of the ways he's done other ones. Right? He gives us this picture of worship and his heart behind the God that he serves and the truth that he's laying out here. And he says in the last part of verse 18, To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. What a great picture of Peter's heart of worship for the Lord God. May that be our heart, that to him be the glory now and forever. That whatever we do, we would walk giving glory ultimately to God. As we've looked through this whole series, as we've looked at the realities of knowing this, knowing that through Scripture we can grow ultimately in grace and knowledge, being mindful of the Scriptures that get twisted, being mindful of the schemes and the ways in which all these things happened in Peter's day and are still happening here today, if you go back to week one, we kind of look to answer some of these questions. And we kind of put some, Pastor Ben put some thoughts out there, some things that we would ultimately learn. And he said that we would know the works that grow our faith. Well, we know that, do we not? What are the works that grow our faith? God's Word, firstly. 
walking it out, living lives that are without spot and blemish, living lives of holiness and godliness. Those are the works that are going to grow our faith. The words that are worthy of following. Well, worst of all, once again, back to God's word. And those that preach it according to it. Not the false teachers. Not the ones that are twisting the scriptures. Not the ones creating instability. But those that are anchored off in the true words of God. Those are the ones that are worthy of following. The warnings that keep us from losing our way. See a theme that keeps pointing us back to scripture. Keeps pointing us back to what God has ultimately told us. And the reminder for us to hold fast. As he told Timothy, that deposit, guard that that deposit that has been entrusted to you. That's what we hold on. We hold on to a hope of a future. We know that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. But we can't sit here and talk about and waste our time figuring that out or only talking about that. We need to be busy about the work of the kingdom. Don't give up on the people in your life that need to know Jesus. It says, God says we're his ambassador. I mean, consider the fact that he has, he has set it in place that we would be the mouthpiece which would speak his words that would bring salvation to the hearts of those that don't know him. Think about that. God ultimately does the saving, and he doesn't even need us, but he chose to, to give us that ministry of reconciliation. Wow. Why would we, why would we put it on the side? Why would we set it aside? And in light of everything that we talked about this morning, the life that we live as a Christian is not just this typical waiting room experience. Our waiting is going to be one of looking, one of hastening, one of an expectation for the return of God, an expectation for the next person that God is going to save. That's what we're here for. That's what our faith should look like. That's what we want to model day in and day out. God, it's in you, Father, that all things are possible. God, it's in you that all the glory belongs. And it's in you that all of our honor, God, points to. And God, as we've closed out this book, God, as we've opened up your word, God, as we've looked intently into the scriptures, God, as we've desired to have a conviction to get this right, to bring glory to your name, God, I pray, Father, that we would be different. God, that you would convict our hearts. God, that you would show us, God, the ways in which we can grow. God, that we wouldn't feel like, Father, that we have arrived. And God, that we would have a boldness to proclaim the name of Christ. God, to speak to those that are in our lives that need to know you. God, just as John said, Father, this idea and this reality of you returning, it's bittersweet. We long for it, but God, yet we desire for those around us, God, to be saved. God, that your patience, Father, is salvation. God, it's in this, Father, God, that we leave. It's in this, Father, that we walk out of here. God, knowing, Father, that you are a good, good God. That you're faithful in all situations. And it's to your name be all the glory and all the honor, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. I love you. See you next week.